Well, my name is Tyler Hardy. Uh, if you don't know me, that's okay. I may not know you, and so that makes two of us. Um, but I'm the senior pastor here at Antioch, and just a brief little history as we're kicking off kind of a new year, right? And Bryan College Station, our year really starts in August, not in January. I don't know why that is, just the way it is. So everybody's leases start August 1st, and we figure that's probably when we should start. So it's kind of the start of a new year for us around here as the church and, and, and as a town, as you know. A couple things about me. Um, I graduated from Texas A&M 2005. Hey, we got some other 05ers in here? Anyone? Oh, they all left town. They're lost. All right. 2005. I did marry a Baylor Bear. Hey. Hi. Used to be a lot more hisses. Seems like we've all come to be more like Jesus recently. All right. I do have five kids. Let's put them on the board here. There we go. I'm showing you that to make us all long for the days of the... Now, let me just say, that was the winter storm that didn't knock out all your power. Right? That was the good one. That was the Sunday snow. It was fluffy. Everybody made snowman. It was like you're in a Hallmark movie. That was that day. I'm not showing you the devastating power outage frozen pipes. I'm not trying to create trauma. I'm trying to encourage you that, hey, you live in a great town because that happened just six months ago. Amen. There's our crew. Just a few people that are a little cold and frustrated that we're taking a picture, but we've all been there. So that's us back in the woods, just hiking around. So uh, that's my wife, Ashley. If you can't tell, then there's Evelyn posing. There's Gwyneth trying to walk away. Madeline is very cold at this moment. Graham and Ethan are having a blast, all right? So that's the crew. That's my family. Um, Twelve years ago, we planted this church, and, uh, and, you know, we started out in the Hilton Hotel. Anyone seen the Hilton? It's like the tallest hotel for 100 miles. Uh, we met there, and it was a lot of fun. And if you missed last week, I kind of shared a little bit of the history of not only our church here locally, but also the Antioch movement of churches uh, there's over 85 teams worldwide that have planted churches, ministering to people in the unreached people groups of the earth. There's other 45 churches here in the U.S., from California to Boston and everywhere in between, uh, that are meeting like this, celebrating Jesus, making disciples, meeting in homes for life groups. So that's what you are a part of here this morning. You stepped into it. But we planted this church 12 years ago. And, you know, simply put, I'll just say this. Our values are very basic. They're on the wall is to love God, love others, and live on mission. And we didn't just make those up. Those are biblical values. We summed them up more than Jesus summed them up. He said in Mark 12, 30, 31, in response to what's the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So to love God and love others, we felt like, hey, that's pretty biblical. And then he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, uh, and then also in Acts 1, he said, hey, go therefore and make disciples, all the nations. He also said in Acts 1, hey, you're going to be my witnesses. Um, and so we kind of took that as, hey, Jesus, some of his parting words to other people was, hey, not only keep the love going, but I need you to stay on mission. It's love and mission. It's not just loving and it's not just mission. It's both in. It's like grace and truth, right? Jesus embodied both fully. He's full grace and he's full truth. You can't get half of Jesus. You got to get all of them, right? And so the church is not half-baked. We are all. So it is all love and all mission, right? So some of us tend towards that loving uh, grace side in a sense at times. Some of us tend towards the missional true side at times, right? And let me just say, any one of us that just gravitate towards one or the other is wrong. But together, it's the full picture, right? It's the fullness of Christ. So that's us at Antioch. So if you hear us talking about opportunities for mission or outreach or whatever, you can know, hey, that's in the Bible. If you're talking about loving people and serving people, that's in the Bible too. And we got it from our King Jesus. All right. Now, here we go. We're going to talk about Matthew, right? The book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. So you got your Bibles. I want you to open up to Matthew chapter five for the next 14 weeks. All right. We're going to take 12 of those 14 weeks. You ready? You ready? Buckle up now. This is Sermon on the Mount Fall, all right? So, but we just don't have to call it that because that's what it's titled in your Bibles. We wanted something way more clever, way more memorable. 
So we're calling it seek first, all right? Seek first, okay? And so that is our desire. We are wanting to seek first the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6, as we'll get to later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be added. He doesn't say seek everything else and hope the righteousness follows and hope the kingdom follows, right? He says seek first the kingdom of God. So we're going to see that reiterated through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, before we get jumping into the particular passage today, scholars would agree, even though it's not titled there, that Matthew was the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, if you don't remember, he was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. He was a a former tax collector. And what you have to remember is that at this time, when he's writing this, this is 30 or 40 years after, um, you know, when uh, essentially he's recording things that Jesus did. And we know it was written 30 to 40 years later. And so up until that time, what did people do before they had something written Right? They had to just share things orally. Right, They had to share the story. So when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four people are writing down the testimonies, the statements, the stories they've been passing on for decades to each other, writing it down, remembering what did Jesus say and how did he do things. And so sometimes when you read the four Gospels, they may not be exactly the same word for word, but the principle, the heart, the concept is the same. So we're going to look at Matthew today. And, you know, when Matthew starts out uh, uh, writing, really what you need to see is this entire theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, which is he is writing how Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the biblical story. He's a continuation and the fulfillment of it. He emphasizes throughout the book of Matthew that he is in the line of David. Right? So God said through your line, through your descendants, David, King David, that I am going to bring the Messiah. So he's in the line of David. He's an authoritative teacher like Moses was, and that he is God, God with us. Those are three key pieces you need to keep in mind because those are three contentious points. Hey, is he really in the line of David? Hey, does he really have authority to say things like that? Who is this guy? And is he really the son of God? Those questions being answered were massive in that day because people were coming against Christ and not believing who he was. And I would say they're massive today. Is he really the son of God or is he just a good teacher? Right? Like, does he really have that kind of authority? Or are you just kind of like throwing out this Jesus name as like a wishful thinking? Because those are essential to understanding the entire gospel narrative. Now, Matthew starts out in chapters one through three talking about the genealogy of Jesus, demonstrating he is from the line of David. He then shows that the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled um, with the birth of Christ and everything leading up to that. And then that Jesus is the promised Messiah, meaning that he is one who is greater than even Moses, greater than David. Back to the idea of the continuation and the fulfillment. Now, let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get into that here in chapter 5. And more or less, what you can sum up the Sermon on the Mount is, is how to live in God's kingdom and how to experience the fruit of obeying the words and teachings of Jesus. And if you do that, you will experience abundant life here on earth, and there's abundant life for you in heaven. So everyone listening to him at this time, they're trying to grid themselves for Jesus is about to talk about what does it mean to be in his kingdom, Right, to be in his family, so to speak. <clears throat> and as he goes through things, and I want you to know this fall, we're going to go through some things that Jesus said that are maybe difficult to hear, especially in our day and age, that may be challenging to really look at and say, oh, man, I got to wrestle with that one, right? So that's why I turn the front end. Don't get angry at us for preaching it. You can be angry at Jesus for saying it. But you're probably going to lose that battle. I would suggest don't be angry at Christ. Just won't go well for you. So we're going to go through the words of Jesus, all right? And and, um, and, and I just want you to know that the audience here is a mixed group of people, right? Um, And Matthew 5, it starts off by talking about how Jesus sat down 
on the mountainside and, um, and that there were his disciples and the crowds, right? Now, crowds, I mean, just think about it. What is a crowd, right? Aggie football game, crowd, right? Like gathering for a concert, crowd, coming to hear something. Or it's crowds. So there's all sorts of characters in there, right? There is rich and poor. There is people who think they are somebodies and people that think they are nobodies. Men and women, everyone in between. So you have to imagine the crowds, Jesus is talking to the disciples and the crowds, meaning everything he's sharing is applicable to them. Now, we're going to talk about the Beatitudes today. Right now, when's the last time you said Beatitude? Anybody last week, last month? A couple of you guys maybe? I haven't heard it referenced in everyday American culture much. Right? So we're probably thinking, man, what, what are the Beatitudes? Right? Um, so uh, I'll, I'll frame it this way. Um, beatitude, many times you can think about blessedness. That's maybe another way to frame the idea of the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are simply these statements that, 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 that Jesus is making about the kingdom and about obeying him that then actually have a reward or result attached to them. So it's these statements of blessed are you, blah, da da. And by the way, there's something special for you. There's something of a reward for you, but it is attached to the obedience piece, right? It's not, it's, these aren't fortune cookies, okay? This is like, oh, I actually, this is an obedience piece. In order for me to get this desired outcome, there's actually an attachment to me obeying the words of Christ. So another way to say it would be blessedness should not be seen as a reward for religious accomplishments, but as an act of God's grace in believers' lives. Rather than congratulating them on spiritual or moral achievements, the beatitude underscores the fact that sinners stand with a forgiving relationship made possible by Christ's atonement. To be blessed ultimately is to understand God's love for you and the fact that you did nothing to deserve it. Revelation 22, 14, which is interesting is this is the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, this word of blessed, which is the same word used in Matthew, 5, in Matthew 5, is used here. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by gates. Isn't that interesting that Jesus starts out talking to all these people about the kingdom of God here on earth. And then actually Revelation 22, it ends with, hey, by the way, that blessing is continuing even up to the point where you enter into the pearly gates. When you enter into this, to this place, oh, blessed is this idea. Blessed are those who have been washed, who have been made clean by Christ. So when Jesus is teaching about how to live in the kingdom of God, he begins with these Beatitudes. And these first three we're going to go over, they describe the emptiness of a blessed person. That kind of sounds odd, doesn't it? Like to be empty means to be blessed. We'll get into it here in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit is a confusing term, right? I don't think anyone's like, I want to be poor in spirit. What? No, you don't. You want to be strong. You know, it's like poor. I want to be rich in spirit. Where's that, right? But poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? It refers to a beggar on the street would be the concept. They know they have nothing. The way into the kingdom is knowing you actually have nothing. Jesus is saying that I can't truly follow Christ on my own. It's those who feel a deep sense of spiritual destitution. Um, it's, it's people who comprehend their lowliness in the eyes of God before God's presence. It's, I'm not even worthy to stand here and be in your presence. It's the idea of saying, man, I am at the lowest of low in the eyes of God. I am nothing. I did not make it myself. I did not give myself this brain. I did not position myself in this opportunity. I didn't pick the family that I was going to be born into, nor do I even have credit for the oxygen I'm breathing or anything else. It's, this idea of, wow, everything comes from him. I'm at this brokely, broken, lowly place, like a beggar on the street. 
Another way to define humility is the understanding that all your blessings originate from the love of God. True humility is acknowledging where everything good in your life comes from. I love this statement. There must be emptiness before there can be fullness. You must be empty before you can be full. Um, Last I checked, when you go to fill up your car with gas, if your tank is full and you stick it in there, that may not go so well. Okay, it'll overflow into a disaster. That's not the kind of overflow you want. You actually need to be on empty to get it all the way filled back up, right? You got to, but you've got to be empty in order to be full. It's the same concept. Once you understand you're empty, then he can fill you. And I would argue many times this concept of, of people not being empty, it's more so I'm already full with the things of this world, so there's no room for you. That's the premise. It's I have all the wealth I need, all the friendships I need, all the food I would ever need. Why do I need God? I'm healthy. I've got my, uh, my house, my wife, my job, my dog. I've got my boat. I've got this. I've got this thing prepared in my life. Why do I need God? That's why later on Jesus said it's actually very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because rich people can't know Christ. It's because they're so full with everything. They feel like they got everything settled. Why do I need God? Why do I need saving? Who's going to help me? I've helped myself. Do you get it? So Jesus starts out with this statement, which is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you know, it's, it's whatever the outward situation is in our lives, the humility gives way to a teachable heart, to a submissive, patient, <laughs> cheerful person. It enables them to prosper in adversity. You know, I love what Paul writes later on in Philippians 4.12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that's coming from a guy that had fasted a lot, by choice and not by choice. That's coming from a guy who has been beaten, who has suffered, who has gone through it, who has been stoned. He has been persecuted. He has been mocked. He's been cut out of the Christian circles at the time because they thought he was a bad dude. He's experienced it. But yet he's saying, I have been brought low in every way, but I've also experienced the good stuff. But you know what? I've learned the secret. The secret. That secret sauce of being content. Of being, but God used to love me. That's a contentness, guys. Our nation struggles with this one. Um, Contentment. Just, Lord, you're enough. That's where anxiety comes from. Comes from not knowing he's enough. It comes from not feeling like you're enough. Comes from feeling like everything's swirling and it's challenging and traumatic and stressful. And that's real. But it's like, what if, what if we learn, what if we learn, learn that secret that Paul has? You know, it's interesting, too, is that on Matthew 5, 3, that I think the crowd and maybe the disciples thought Jesus was going to say something like this. Um, You're the descendants of Abraham, and therefore yours is the kingdom of God. They probably thought, hey, we're, we're the Jewish people. We're in the line like, hey, we're part of the tribes, part of the kingdom, right, Jesus? Right, Born in the right family, from the right town, the right group. And Jjesus is saying, no, it's not about your family name. It's not about the state you live in, the country you live in. It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about self-righteous living. That ain't going to get you in the kingdom of God. He said, no, it's those that recognize their own brokenness, their own depravity, their own need for God. Those are the ones that recognize they need saving. He continues on in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Someone brought to my attention this week that shall is not a word we always use unless you're watching some sort of British show, right? So you can use the word will there, right? For they will be comforted. But you can say shall. I kind of like saying shall, you know, start spreading it around here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, mourning, I, I actually had to dig a little deeper this week because when we think of mourning, we usually have an idea. Which is funeral, it's death, it's loss, it's the morning, right? It's weep with those who weep, it's the morning, right? 
That's actually not what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 4. He is saying mourning as in reference to sin. Okay, it's not suffering and death. It's, it's sin related. It's a mourning over your own sin. Right? It's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the reality that actually um, mourning has its roots in sin. That death itself is traced back to sin entering the world through Adam and Eve. Right? Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall, there shall, surely die. I mean, whoa. In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. But you know, Adam and Eve didn't die that day, did they? God lying? Was God lying? Was he, from the very beginning, you shall surely die? Is he going back on his word? That death is connected to sin. And sin ultimately leads to death. Therefore, we can look at the statement, blessed are those who mourn, as covering all those who are led by mourning to a discerning of sin and who detest its effects and consequences in the world. Do you mourn over sin, right? Maybe another word for us. Do you grieve over it? Do you grieve over sin? <clears throat> Are you okay with it? You know, I love this illustration we got years ago. Someone did it back in Waco, and we've used it a few times, and it is awesome. I would do it this morning. I didn't have time to bake these. So um, imagine if I baked a chocolate chip cookie. You know, one of those like Joanna Gaines big chocolate chip cookies. You know what I'm talking about. We have a cookbook. So we bake these big old cookies like this, you know. And it's a big one. You're like, woo, and your mouth starts watering. Yes. You see it, and you're like, oh, I need that oh, cookie. That's my cookie, right? And you get it, and you take a bite, and you're like, oh, man. Chocolate chips, a little crunch in there. And then I told you, man, that is a cookie recipe. But I added one thing in it. Some of our dogs poop. That ain't chocolate. I know you said it had a little extra something in there. That was some poop. But the rest of the cookie was great. But the poop, when we put it in the KitchenAid mixer, it did mix with everything. So every bite you took had a little bit of poop. Now stay with me. If you are okay with sin, then you are okay with eating a cookie mixed with poop. Because you are not grieved over your sin. You're okay with it. You just want to say, I'm sorry. Isn't that enough? That's not a repentant heart, by the way. Saying I'm sorry is not repentance. Repentance is literally a turning away from. It's not, I'm sorry, forgive me. I forgive you. Now change. I don't want to change. I said, I'm sorry. That's a fake sorry. Jesus, you do not enter the kingdom of heaven with a fake sorry. With a shallow apology. A real, I'm sorry, is actually has a continuation of, and by the way, I've changed. Let's, let's not mix. It is action and words both. Right? You may trick people. You can't trick him. Right? Guys, let's stop eating cookies and pooping them, amen? <laughs> James 4, 8, 10 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you hear it again? James later reiterates this beatitude. He's saying, mourn over that sin. Get rid of it. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will draw near to you. God draws near to the humble, repentant heart. Oh, he draws near to it. He comes on like a magnet. Whoa. God opposes the proud, though. Gives grace to the humble. See, the comfort comes in response to someone receiving God's pardon, God's forgiveness. 
Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The humble will receive far more than the prideful. You have noticed? Not only will they enjoy more life on this earth, but they will possess and enjoy um, the earth after Jesus' second coming as well. It's not, it's blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's the idea here that there's an inheritance for you here and there. Now, meek, again, another tricky word, right? We don't use meek all the time, right? I don't, no one in a while said, man, Tyler, you're so meek. You know, I'd be like, what are you trying to say, you know? Um, but once you understand this definition, you're going to want to be called meek. Yes. Be like, you're going to be at like the gym. You're like, yeah, I'm meek. Okay, here you go. Meek, I'll define it for you. Strength contained. Strength contained. Okay. Those who can contain how they could respond, what they could do, it is strength under control. Remember that Jesus has all the power in the palm of his hand. He allowed people to spit on him, mock him, allowed people to murder him, yet he was meek. He resisted what he could have done because he knew there was something more important to do. He came to save those who put nails in his hands. Do not say Jesus was meek and Jesus was just nice and kind and had soft skin. He might have, but Jesus was strength contained. He is a wrecking ball in the kingdom. He could cast all of it out. He could have sent his legions of angels to just do away with everything. There is nothing he couldn't heal or touch. He calmed the storm, which we freak out at. He cast the demons out that other people are scared of. I mean, he is not weak. He is meek. He is strength contained. It's in those who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas and their own strength. You know, the greatest leaders in world history are those that won their people over but not by force, but by serving them, by having strength, but it was controlled, not erratic, it was focused. It was encouraging, yet confidence. I like to use the phrase humble confidence. That's what Jesus had, this contained strength. He's saying, blessed are the meek. They are the ones that will inherit. They are the ones that I'm entrusting in the family of God. So application for us is you want to be meek because that means that God has put things in you. It's that resolve, right? It's that, I don't know how to describe it to you. It's, um, it's, it's that deep conviction, right? And, and, and that resolve that says when everyone else is caving, I will not. I will stand firm. I'll be like a big oak tree. I'll stand firm but I will also not leverage my strength to abuse or oppress or control others. My strength is to serve. Do you get the difference? Most men and women in this world use their strength, their giftings, whatever it is in God, the world, or academically, to usurp, to be over, to control, to boost their own agenda. That's why Jesus was such an upside-down leader. He could have done that. He chose not to. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, this is a goodie. Everyone likes this one. We're like, ooh, I've heard that one. I know that one. That's the buffet calling my name. Right? It's like, man, it's going to be in America. Buffets, refills. You see that? Biblically, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, righteousness. Now, food. All right? So let's get it clear here. The condition of blessed emptiness that Jesus just described, these three Beatitudes leading up to this one, is followed by a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, I want you to get empty. I want you to get low. I want you to get humble. And now I want you to feast. Do you see? That's the idea behind fasting. Empty yourself so you can feed yourself with something better. Right? It's the emptying you ever heard, you are what you eat? Of course you have, right? Yep. You are what you eat, right? Nutritionists tell us 
that our appetites determine our diet, our diet determines our intake, and our intake determines our health. Right? It's just, it's pretty simple. There's only so many things. You are born with certain things, and I get all that. I'm not a doctor. I don't know all that. All the DNA and chemical. I don't know all that, all right? Everybody's born, all right? That's all I know. I saw five babies come out, and they were born, all right? But from that day forward, hey, it's what you put in that body. It's what you do with that body. It's, it's pretty simple. You sleep, you eat, you hydrate, you exercise, right? That actually determines your health. You can't do anything about how you're born. Sorry. But from there on, you do. From there on, actually, you determine what you hunger and thirst for. It's on you. It's not mom's fault. It's not dad's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's not the church's fault. You have the options right now to choose to feed and hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can also choose to feed or hunger and thirst for unrighteousness. But there's only two categories. You know what I'm saying? Like, Jesus is trying to make it apparently clear. Let me kind of break down this hunger and thirst for righteousness thing, okay? So commentators point to two possible meanings for righteousness as used in this verse. First, Jesus could be talking about people who are eager to be declared righteous by God. They want to be made righteous themselves and to conform to the will of God. And that way, they're sincerely seeking to be saved. Those who come to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness from sin will receive exactly from God what they desired, which is salvation. Now, the other way to view righteousness in this passage is that Jesus has in mind those who are hungry to see righteousness. They long for justice to prevail. They want what is right to overcome what is wrong and evil in the world. These people, too, will be satisfied because the kingdom of heaven will bring an end to all unrighteousness. Their appetite for righteousness will be completely satisfied one day. Now, to be clear, salvation is available today. Eradicating planet Earth of all unrighteousness is not available today unless Jesus returns this afternoon. Okay? That will exist in tension, which means then we live our lives chipping away at the unrighteousness and bringing about justice setting the oppressed free and, and, and doing things that are in a God-honoring way to bring about his kingdom and the values and teachings and virtues of Christ, that's what we want to have in our society because we know that doing things God's way is actually the best way. There is not a better way to do family than how God's prescribed it. There's not a better way to do education than how God's prescribed it. There's not a better way to deal with finances than how God's prescribed it. He actually has given us the playbook on how to function and act and everything else. And if it's not spelled out directly, it's indirect or it's in principle you can apply to your life. So I, am, I have no problem talking to someone, whether or not they believe Christ or not, or saved or not, or Hindu or Muslim, about the teachings of Christ because what he teaches is actually amazing. Like, it's applied. It's like, it just works. And so we have to be a people that are willing to contend for that. Now, what's encouraging is that we have a ministry called Unbound. Have you heard of Unbound? Um, it's our anti-human trafficking ministry. There's a few chapters of it in Texas. It's part of the Antioch movement. We have our own local Unbound Bryan College Station chapter here. Amanda Binger is our director. She's doing an amazing job. She's got an amazing team. And I just want to encourage you that... They are doing incredible work in our city. They've even done some stuff around the world. Specifically in our city, they have been chosen as the primary advocates in these seven surrounding counties to deal with any human trafficking cases. So FBI, police, hospitals, anyone picks up a young lady, a young man who's been trafficked, something that's going on, then they get contact and they're part of the first responder teams that go meet them in the hotel, in the hospital, on scene to provide that immediate care and trauma and then help provide a program and a plan for them to get out of that and to get restored. They're doing that over and over and over. And they're also winning credibility within our government, within the police force, the FBI and everything else because they're doing incredible work in the name of Jesus, but they're not going around every single day preaching the gospel. They are demonstrating it by the work they're doing and they're unapologetic about the fact we love Christ and this is why we're doing it. The idea of setting the oppressed free is not from us. It's from Jesus. 
that's what he came to do. We're just doing it in our modern day, addressing this issue. Does it make sense? That's an example of saying, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness in our city. Their goal is to eradicate human trafficking in the Brazos County. That's the, that's the big win if we can eliminate all human trafficking. Now, that's a tall order. But you know what? That's the vision. Because God is in, God's desire is that people are not trafficked. Period. So that's an area we get to partner with. And no, we're not, we don't have 101 things like that. We've got to pick and choose and say, Lord, what have you given us? What's our portion and our cup in this town to go after? This is one of those things. Does that make sense? And for you, I would say, don't try to be the Walmart to everything. I'm not opposed to Walmart. I just bought a bunch of school supplies there. Bless Walmart. I went to the Walmart place in Arkansas, the original place. It was cool. But... We are not trying to be that. We are trying to say, God, what have you called us to be? What are we supposed to put our shoulder into? And let us do it well. And allow us to encourage others in the body of Christ, other churches, to put their shoulder into that. Does that make sense? And so if the churches in our city would all rally and say, hey, we're putting our shoulder into this. You're putting your shoulder into that. Then guess what? We would deal with the unrighteousness. Does that make sense? So your biggest encouragement to the number person who goes to the church is, hey, what are you guys doing to go after something in our city? How can I pray for that? How can I encourage you in that? I love you guys are doing that. Yes. And then be okay with your portion. Make sense? Yes. All right. Man, I got to keep moving. All right. Yeah. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. <coughs> mercy grows up like fruit in a broken heart, a meek spirit, and a soul that hungers and thirsts for God to be merciful. We show mercy because we've been given mercy. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and you know what? I just want to make this statement. I'm so glad God is not fair. You ever thought about that? He's not fair at all. If God was fair, I'm condemned to hell. I have no place in heaven. I have not deserved a place in heaven from the sins I've committed in my past and my life, the crazy thoughts I've had, the addictions I've had, the people I've wronged, I deserve eternal prison, period. I don't care how nice I seem. Without Christ, I'm a very wicked person. Very dark, very destructive. So are you. God's not fair. He's so not fair, he sent his son, Jesus. He said, I'm not gonna be fair, but I'm gonna give mercy. I'm going to give mercy. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Ain't that good. Other way around, all of us are not going to heaven. Seriously. If the judgment trumps the mercy, then the judgment goes first. We all receive that judgment. No mercy. Oh, thank you, Lord, for switching those around. We get the mercy of God before the judgment of God. Do you understand? It's not that God doesn't have judgment. He absolutely does. That's absolutely clear. But the mercy, oh, the mercy God's applied to our lives, guys. Over and over and over. The opportunity gives us to confess and repent of our sins and to change our ways. Oh, the mercy of God. It is beautiful. And the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person that gets to know other broken people. One person years ago said, hey, just, just you know, everybody's broken. It's true. We're all broken before God. We show it different ways. Right? It looks different. I remember I shared last week how in uh, 2016, we did something called Engage the Crisis as the Antioch Movement and sent a bunch of people to Europe and short-term trips to help, help refugees coming from Syria and Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places that were fleeing across Europe. And... Um, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to be in Brussels with our team there. We had, and we did a day trip out to Calais, France. And that's right on the coast of France and across the way is England, so across the English Channel. And many refugees had made their way there. And there was this big tent city called the Jungles, what they called it. And there's over 5,000, mostly young men, 5,000 men that have fled from the Middle East all the way trying to make, them, uh, make their way to England. And Getting to talk with some of them was incredible. Got to talk to people from Eritrea and Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. And I got to talk with, with, with a man from Afghanistan for a while. And um, as we were talking, he shared a story with me about why he had fled. And eventually he invited me to go get lunch. Now I'm here in the jungle. These, it's just a bunch of tents. 
I'm like, where are we going to get lunch? She says, follow me, follow me. So we walk, and we go into this conspicuous tent. I'm like, hey, here I am, man. Walk in the tent, and it's like this whole cafe, this secret cafe. And it was like illegal because the French police would walk in and they would destroy things. They didn't want to have any businesses or anything like that. And so they would have to where they could set it up and, and break it down within five minutes. It was crazy. But it was like an Afghan restaurant. I've never been in one since. It was awesome. It was an Afghan tent. And so we're eating and the bread is not. And I was like, this is awesome. And he invited another Afghan man to sit with us. And I shared my story. And I told him about Jesus. And they told me about Allah and Muhammad and what they believed in. I got to pray for them and hear their story and they haven't met many Christians in their life and they got to at least meet me that day and we get to share stories. But man, I came back from that just like broken. I was like, wow. I mean, listen, 9-11's coming up and I don't need to get everything that's happening the last few weeks, but you know, that was my freshman year at a I'm about to take my very first calculus exam. I'm literally in my car doing last minute cramming <laughs> before I go in. And I hear the radio. The two towers have just been hit and they're not sure what's going on. I turn the radio off, go take my exam. Come back and see everything unfolding. Okay? So like, I did not have a grid for Afghans. But getting to meet him, I was like, I don't know where this guy's at. I don't know his whole story. But getting to hear some of the story, it softens my heart. It makes you understand, wow, he's been through hell. The only thing that's gonna save him it's not England. It's not a visa. It's Jesus. That's right. So I was clear about that. You got to hear me share. I don't know where that man's life is now. But you've got to interact with the broken and hurting in order to have a heart of mercy. Another thing I just want to share briefly is you guys may know that we have a ministry called Acts of Mercy. Um, it just recently started, and uh, Hope and Kevin Valle helped lead that up. And, um, uh, you know, with everything going on in Haiti, Right now, with the earthquake, they just got hit by uh, Antioch. I think just sent in a team this weekend. Uh, uh, there's a gal from our church and some other uh, Antioch Waco other churches that just got on a plane and they're headed down to Haiti for a week to do medical supplies and emergency things and all that sort of stuff. And we're going to be sending some teams as well here in the coming weeks. And um, you know, it's an opportunity for Antioch to apply the mercy of God to people who just suffered through an earthquake. We can do something. And you know, it's not that we're able to respond to every crisis in the world. We're not. There's a lot of things that we're not able to engage with or don't have the means to do that yet. It doesn't mean there's not a heart for it. It just means that, like I said, we can't do everything. We're choosing to engage in this because we think that's something that we actually can help with versus getting in the way, right? And so we want to be helping. We want to be contributing. And that's a way that we can show the mercy of God. Last, I'll just share this, this line from... From Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, <clears throat> 10 through 13, it says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You know, when Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he's quoting Hosea 6. He's quoting Hosea 6, where God accuses the people that their love is like the dew on the grass. There for a few morning hours and then fades away. God's not interested in us being one hit wonders of mercy. You see, I gave that guy some bread. Mercy done for the year. He's interested in us being those who are merciful by life. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For they shall see God. Matthew 23, 25 through 26 kind of reiterates this. Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You know, the heart is what you are. In the privacy of your thoughts, of your feelings, where nobody knows but God. And what you are at the root level matters more than what you are at the branches. The roots supply the branches. The pure heart 
The pure in heart are those who are free from evil desires and purposes. Meaning, maybe that's the question, how do you become free? How do you have a pure heart? It's by confessing. It's by repenting. It's the turning away from. It's the obeying of Jesus. It is that desire and that lifestyle to say, we want a pure heart. The only way to get that is by coming to him and coming clean to him. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are those who promote God's peace. Coming from the Hebrew word, shalom, which you've heard before, right? Shalom. Total well-being. Shalom. But that's not just personally, that's communally. See, shalom is not just for me and Jason. Jason, shalom. Just total well-being. It's for me and Jason and my family and his family and the other family. It's, we want a total peace. We want this. I want this peace with my brother, but I also want us as a community to have peace, total well-being. It is, it is the idea of a peacemaker as one saying, not just individually, but also for society and community, with God being the ultimate peacemaker. For peace is not the absence of conflict or pain, but rather the power and presence of Christ in the midst of the struggle. Peace is not the absence of conflict or pain, but rather the power and presence of Christ in the midst of the struggle. We can oftentimes imagine a nice, calm lake with those beautiful trees. Maybe it's the fall. There's no waves, a little bit of mist, fish jumping up out of the water, rolling hills, a sunrise coming with your nice cup of tea, coffee, or purified water. And you're like, this is it. And I'm there with you. I'm like, that sounds awesome. If I could walk outside and have that every morning, I might be a better person. It's going to help me. It won't hurt. That's for darn sure, right? But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about everybody go find their secret hiding spot where no one gets to them. There is no technology. And it's just, whoo. I don't know if there's enough space around here for that, Okay. He's talking about a peacemaker, someone actively engaging with Christ, one who is actually forgiven. When we receive that forgiveness, we then apply that same forgiveness as how peace comes. Peace comes through forgiveness, you know? It doesn't come through war. Matthew 10, 12. Now, before we get here, I know I'm out of time here. I'm just gonna end with this. I just wanna say, if you've ever read through Sermon on the Mount, you read through all these great statements. You're like, man, Blessed is the merciful to meek. You're like, yes, feeling good. And then it's like, and then Jesus says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now listen, there's no easy transition to this. Just going to say it. There's not. This could be a whole sermon itself. But here's what I'm going to say. We are to hunger and to thirst after a kind of life that will cause some people to persecute us for our faith. And so righteousness is a lifestyle that distinguishes us as true Christians. And yet it invites opposition from the world. We're not trying to be liked by the world. If your goal is to be liked by the world, you are deeply misled, deeply deceived. That doesn't mean you're trying to make enemies of everybody. Don't hear me say that. The goal is not to be liked by the world. That was not Jesus' goal. His goal was to do the Father's business. His goal was to do what the Father was doing. Our goal is to follow Christ, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to do things the way that he does them. But what that will, the cause and effect of that is persecution will come. But why? For righteousness sake. Persecution comes, what does he say? On my account. Jesus is even saying that people right now in our world that are being persecuted for their faith, they're persecuting you on my account. Jesus knew this would happen. That's not easy to think about. These have deeper meanings today 
with the events happening in Afghanistan. According to Open Doors, which is an organization that tracks persecution worldwide of Christians, there are approximately 309 million Christians that are in the top 50 countries of the World Watch List that are actively being persecuted at high levels. One in eight Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution to give you a grid. The top five countries in 2021 for the highest level of persecution are North Korea, then Afghanistan, then Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. I didn't know Afghanistan was number two. And that was before two weeks ago. It is probably the most heavily persecuted country on planet Earth right now, if you're a Christian. I don't have time to share the gut-wrenching stories that are happening to men and women right now that are followers of Christ in Afghanistan. But persecution is happening on a real level. Lives are being taken systematically. I share that with you so that one, you have mercy. Because <laughs> when you know what's happening to someone else in the world, it does cause you to bend. It causes us to maybe think less about our shoe choices <laughs> and our post, or what our opinions are on politics or what someone said or didn't say to me. When you zoom out and actually put the perspective of God on people in the world, sometimes our things seem less important. Not, not important, maybe a little less. And so what do we do with the Beatitudes? There's a lot there. I feel kind of overwhelmed preaching it to you, to be honest. But it's what Jesus started out with. It's what he launched his ministry on, really, from all accounts. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a moment here. The band's going to begin to play. Here's how we're going to respond. Um, number one, I want to encourage you with this, that the thing you need to hear from the attitudes is Jesus is inviting you to live a way that he's teaching you to live. <coughs> it may be new for you. This may be repeat. I don't know. But wherever you are, I want you to take a moment. If you've got your Bible, if you've got a Bible app, pull it out. And I just want everyone right now, you're just going to look at one beatitude. Look at one. Just right now, I'm believing the Spirit of God. We've just got a few minutes here. Just believe He's going to highlight one beatitude, one of those that you need to really dwell on, think about. Because we don't want to just hear things and let them slip out. We want to digest them. <laughs> we want to have them be part of our DNA. So we're just going to take a moment, and the band will lead us in worship in just a second. But just take a moment, and just before you and God... Just say, Lord, what's the one I need to focus on? Give me the one. Uh, don't try to focus on all of them right now. Just, Lord, what's the one you're highlighting for me yeah. that you want to get into my heart today? Thank you, Lord. <laughs> 